Welcome to the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Tina Muir. Hello, Tina Muir here, and I would like to welcome you to another episode of Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast. I'm so happy you're tuning into another episode. I would like to thank you for taking the time to listen today. I know you have many choices to where you could spend your time, so I really appreciate you choosing to listen to Runners Connect. I also would like to thank you for the feedback you've given from previous episodes and your patience as I continue to grow into my role as a podcast host. I apologize for my nervousness. I'm hoping as I become more comfortable it will flow a little bit smoother, but I appreciate you being patient while I go through this. Today, let's get on with our show. Our guest is one of our writers. You may have seen him on our blog. He has written quite a few of our popular articles, Matt Phillips. He is a sports therapist with over 20 years of experience. He is a running performance coach who specializes in movement and pain management. He writes for Running Fitness Magazine in addition to Runners Connect and is the head of the Hove 57 Run Club which provides support to runners and looks at fundamental agility, balance and coordination training to help reduce your injury risk. Matt is also a presenter at conferences for Brighton Marathon and London Marathon. So if you had not already guessed, he is British, so I hope you do not mind the accents because you're going to be hearing quite a lot of them today. Matt is also known for his runner's MOT, or known as inspection, in the US, which is a 30-minute full-body gait analysis to look at what you can do to become more efficient based on your individual differences. So today's show, we're going to look at the importance of a full-body gait analysis, especially when compared to the prescription in most running stores based on just your arch alone. You're going to find out how to find reliable running form analysis locations from someone who really knows what they're talking about and what you can watch out for to make sure that you do go to the right place. We're also going to talk about how if Haile Gebrselassie walked into a running store, he would be prescribed motion control shoes, but in fact he wears neutral shoes, so things are not always as they seem. We're also going to tell you about how you can use comfort level to pick not only what footwear is right for you, but also testing around with orthotics. We look at whether orthotics are right, whether they're overprescribed, or what Matt thinks about this. Finally, we're going to talk about Matt's thoughts on a sub-two-hour marathon and what puts Kenyan and Ethiopian athletes ahead of the rest of the world, especially right now compared to about 20 years ago, what his thinking is on why we are struggling and why it may be just a little while longer before we reach that two-hour marathon. So that's enough from me. Let's get on with the interview. Welcome, Matt, to the Run to the Top podcast. Thanks very much, Tina. Thanks for inviting me along. We're excited to have you. So could you explain your job a little bit, just uh, what you do to help runners? I'm sure many of our listeners have read your articles on our blog, but just some information for those who may not have uh, specifically looked into what you do. Um, okay, so I'm a sports therapist um, over here in the UK, um, background in strength and conditioning. Um, not just looking after runners, but specialising in helping particularly distance runners overcome injury and pain. Um, and give them advice on changes to uh, their training and maybe their running form, um, aim at reducing the risk of re-injury and in, and in process maybe improving their performance as well. That's great. Um, as part of that, um, a big part of that, especially these days, is using um, full body video gait analysis um, to look for maybe traits in their running form, um, even from a very early stage that could be causing overloaded tissues and restricting their performance. Okay, so you're saying that you, you don't just work with, you know, elite athletes or in particular you don't, you know, spend a lot of time with elites. This is for everyone who is interested in. The majority of our runners, I'm from Brighton on the south coast and it's a massive running town um, and it's a great example of how the average age of runners has increased and it's it's opened up to to um, loads more people who, you know, originally wouldn't even dream of putting a pair of trainers on. Um, so probably... 85% of my uh, runners are recreational. We do get a few elites in. There's a few kind of sub three marathon runners, but the majority are looking at kind of between 345 and maybe 5 or 445. So that kind of area. Okay, that's good to know. So uh, you wrote a post for us recently about uh, how a running store gate analysis may not help you find the right shoe. Uh, for years, we've been told 
you must get a gait analysis to know what shoe to wear and you must go to the running stores. But how are these full gait analysis different to running stores? Okay, so um, it was quite a popular post, a little bit kind of accepted a bit, a bit of controversy, but I've got to point out that I'm not criticising running stores at all, or I'm not criticising any running store who kind of dares to put a treadmill in the, in the store, but what I'm criticising is a model of shoe prescription that's traditionally been used in, in many running stores, um, and it's still used in quite a lot today. Um, despite the fact that, um, despite good intention, there's absolutely no research to support this model, and there's even evidence that if used um, in prescription of trainers, it could actually harm the runners. Um, so I'm referring to, like I did in the article, the arch type model. So the idea that we can categorise all runners into three groups based on their arch height, and then we can um, recommend them shoes accordingly. So most readers will probably have heard about the idea of if you're a high arch runner. You, you normally get the label over supinator and therefore you're kind of recommended a more cushioned shoe. Um, if you have a low arch, what they regard as a low arch, um, you're told you overpronate and therefore you're recommended a motion control shoe. And if you're one of the, in theory, lucky few who are somewhere in the middle, um, you're called neutral and you're given a stability shoe. Um, it's a nice tidy package. And in the past, um, it um, has successfully been used to uh, recommend shoes. And a lot of runners seem to have benefited from using this model. But when you look at the research, it's kind of 50-50. You know, you may as well flip a coin using this model. And um, if it helps you, it helps you. But it's not because of the shoe that was given to you. So um, the problem I see with gait analysis in not all running stores, but quite a lot of them, is they're still using this model. They're just looking at the foot down. Um, so they're only really, in their experience, looking at what happens to the medial arch and they're making a decision, are you high, normal or low? This is the shoe you need. Um, so that's what it's about basically. It's not that there's a lot of running stores we work with who have got treadmills and they're looking at the sort of thing that we do, so we're looking at the whole body. Um, but there's still quite a lot of kind of brand corporate companies who have got the kind of foot analysis um, and they're just still looking for how much do you pronate and calling an overpronate and things like this we're trying to remove from the industry because it doesn't really help runners. Yep, that makes that makes perfect sense, and I'm glad you cleared that up for us because I'm sure lots of people were wondering about that. So, is there a better model we can use? I mean, you talked about the full body gait, but what does that involve? Well, this is this is the bit of the problem because it's easy. I mean, we can dismiss the um, overpronation model, but as yet, science hasn't come up with an alternative model, and it may be a sign that we just can't categorise all runners into tidy little boxes. We're all very different physiologically speaking and um, our history of injuries and psychologically. Um, the only model as such which research is supporting at the moment is quite basically the, the, the use of comfort as a tool. Um, it kind of makes sense if a shoe is comfortable then it's going to help you and although comfort is very subjective research has shown that people who put on some shoes and it just doesn't quite feel comfortable um, a lot of them or statistically a significant amount of them do end up injuring themselves. So although it sounds a little bit non-scientific to say, is this shoe comfortable, then that's the one for you, there's actually more scientific, valuable scientific research to show that's a good model for selecting shoes rather than what does your arches look like when you run. Um, maybe something more scientific sounding will come from the future and other people are working on it, but at the moment there's not really an easy, quick fix alternative um, for selecting shoes for people. Wow, that's really interesting about the comfort. Um, I really, I wouldn't have guessed that, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And um, thinking about it, you know, sometimes you do go for a run in a pair of shoes and you just, it just doesn't feel right. And even if you, you may, you know, give them a chance, keep trying, keep trying, but something, it doesn't feel quite right. And maybe that is, there is more to that than we initially thought. So that's interesting. So would you say the term overpronation has been misused? Yeah, I mean, this is, is, is my colleagues um, and my peers have been trying for probably a lot longer than me to to be showing that overpronation, the term overpronation maybe shouldn't even exist. Um, probably some readers all have heard or read that pronation is a perfectly natural part of human movement and and we tend to cringe when someone comes in and goes, oh, I know what my problem is, I'm a pronator, and you want to say, well, fortunately you are, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to move much at all and you'd probably fall over. So this idea of overpronation suggests that we can, we can say how much pronation, natural pronation is necessary. And that's part of the problem because we can't. Um, a lot of 
um, kind of therapy and decisions are based on this idea of symmetry that we should all kind of have level shoulders, level pelvis, and kind of neutral subtalar joint. But it's that doesn't really happen in nature. We're not symmetrical, and you only have to look at some of the elite runners to realise that symmetry isn't isn't the way they win. Um, there's some fantastic cases of that. You look at Haley Gebre Selassie, for example, who's still one of the most famous distance runners, probably will always be. And one look at him on, on YouTube, there's some classic videos, and if he went into some of these running stores, they'd be offering him some serious motion control shoes of some form. And yet he does what he does, I think, in um, Adidas Zeros or something, a neutral, non-stability shoe. Um, so he should pretty much silence anybody who says you're an overpronator because if anyone's saying that he needs help, then they need help themselves. Um, there is such a thing as excessive pronation but it's kind of more to do with moments as in the amount of time you spend moving into pronation than coming out of it um, so one of the issues again with people even of my level of understanding and more is how do you measure pronation and also what are you actually measuring because typically over pronation in, in, in running stores and also some other therapists using it as a form of, of treating runners is how much the medial arch drops so they're looking at something called navicular drop um, that's very difficult to measure. We talk about neutral subtalar joint, but subtalar joints like differs between different people. Physiologically, people have different shaped bones, so finding a neutral subtalar joint can prove very difficult. Research has shown that. And then also, although you think it's the arch dropping, if you think about it, you imagine a foot. It could be um, that the the heel is moving onto its inner edge, inner edge, which will give you the impression of an avicular drop. But it's not. It could be that the forefoot is, is moving outwards or abducting, which would give you the same kind of impression, but it's a totally different source of issue. So, or it could be all three. So anything that's geared towards right, we need to you know, control this navicular drop because that's the problem, is, is kind of flawed from the start. Um, so probably the best thing is if at our level, and definitely runners, is kind of forget about this idea of, of overpronation. Um, you can pronate too much, but it... The fact of that is far different than anything you're going to hear or be able to see yourself or hear from somebody giving you a gait analysis in the shop. That's interesting. And uh, so yeah. there's so many elements that come into the term pronation. And uh, so that would definitely, that clears up a little bit about uh, why why people would misunderstand it and um, what why it's so important to look for uh, means just beyond how your foot rolls from the outside to the inside. So when you do talk about a full body gait analysis, uh, what, what do you look for or what does that involve for runners? So the idea of full body gait analysis is it's more, probably a more accurate term would be we're doing a running technique analysis. And by that we're looking, we're considering what the whole body is doing and not just looking at what's happening um, at foot level, especially if the model we're using at foot level is, is flawed and shown not to be you know, very scientifically backed. Um, what research has shown us is that what's going on um, in the upper body, especially the hips and the trunk, um, can play a vital role in controlling the movements of the lower body. So in other words, if you're suffering from some foot and ankle issue or knee pain or ITB syndrome or, or you injured yourself in ACL or something, then it's very important. Research suggests we need to look higher up the chains, what's happening in the pelvis and that. Um, we need to kind of by, by doing that and having runners come in and look at the whole body and start to appreciate that running is a, is a global activity, we try and move them away from this idea that they need to rely on what they're putting on their foot or how their foot is landing on the floor um, in terms of improving their running or reducing injuries. No, it's about looking at technique, how they're moving, as well as their training program and other things which you know are more connected to um, injury risk. Um, and conditioning as well, stuff they're doing outside of running their auxiliary exercise and stuff like that. So our whole point of full body video gate and video gate analysis is, is kind of to educate the runners to look at the whole body, not just think about what's happening at foot level. That's interesting. And uh, a lot of the articles we've covered recently have been about hips. And uh, I actually had a full body gait analysis myself a few uh, months ago. And um, the main focus of it was my, my hip drop. And um, I've kind of seen... You know, before I thought, oh, I do some planks and I do my uh, sit-ups and things and that's enough to uh, keep a strong core. But with the exercises I've been given, uh, none of them really are to do with my lower leg or my foot, but instead they're for strengthening the hip and strengthening uh, the trunk, like the entire core. And um, 
that's interesting what you did say about the full body and what looking at the the body as a whole rather than just looking at one element of it so um, so if a running store has those uh, force impact plates to see how that uh, how your foot disperses the impact would you say those are useful or again is it you need to have a someone working there who understands the entire body I think I mean I'm not sure I know in the UK that it's not that typical to have uh, force impact plates in running stores and we work with podiatrists who use them um, in the prescription of um, orthoses and things like that and um, we don't use them in our gate lab um, I think for, for research you know they've proved themselves vital um, it's thanks to the use of force plates that we know for example that it's not a case of midfoot or forefoot equals less impact and heel striking equals more um, force plates have shown clearly that it's not a case of where the foot it's not a case of what part of the foot touches the ground first it's where the foot lands in relation to the rest of the body to the body center of mass so the force plates continue to help us along those lines um, of research but again yeah as far as helping runners especially recreational runners I think and helping them overcome injury or improve their performance and there's still a lot more we can gain by looking at the whole picture by looking at the rest of the body as opposed to just focusing on initial contact loads and things like that. Um, it's difficult if you've got an athlete, an elite athlete of a higher level. I mean, even yourself, you're running a, is it 115 half marathon, 114 half marathon? Yeah. So that would be a dream for a lot of the runners I see. A lot of them are still trying to crack two or something. So they've got an awful lot of work we can do before worrying about how much force or even trying to measure how much force is going through there. Um, their lower limbs. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd, I'd love to have a lab like Jay Disheries in Oregon or Irene Davis in Boston with a force treadmill and a massive, impressive and kind of runway with an embedded force, but that'd be amazing. I probably wouldn't see my wife at all and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't really get out of the house at all, but um, I think there's an awful lot we can do, again, to help the runner take the focus away from the foot and look at the uh, the rest of the body. Um, so, yeah, that's how we work. Anyway. Okay, so could you... Uh explain a little bit about your runner's MOT um, just because you talked about you know there's plenty of other elements that the recreational runners can focus on um, but you know that like for me that gate analysis was $350 it was a three and a half hour thing so what would it can you explain a bit a little bit about that because it's more of a realistic thing for the average runner to participate in yeah definitely I mean we've We've been doing, we started video gate analysis uh, full body like about 10 years ago when when there wasn't a lot of other people doing it. Um, the, the shoe shops in our country, the, the big brands, hadn't started kind of using it. And it was quite an elite. Um, one, because of the expense of setting up a lab and having um, the cameras and the cables and the software and the treadmill alone. Um, having a decent treadmill that's going to replicate out, outdoor running is expensive. So it was something where we had to charge quite a lot. And the only people who really did it were people who were serious in their running and, and were willing to spend that, make that kind of investment. But as times have changed and people are now more aware of the importance of running technique with reducing injury risk and um, increasing performance, kind of I felt that we needed to be able to give a product that would be more accessible to the everyday runner. Um, who maybe doesn't want to spend that much or risk that much. So we created um, this uh, MOT, which instead of the kind of two and a half hours, um, is kind of condensed 90 minutes. And it gives us a chance, as well as looking at the kind of movement patterns of the runner um, and doing some strength and conditioning tests, we also give them a chance to see themselves on the treadmill and point out some of the traits which we know thanks to research um, are common amongst runners suffering from certain issues and also common amongst runners who maybe aren't able to reach their goals and kind of stuck and plateaued. Um, and there's a few of those which, to tell you the truth, in, in 45 minutes or an hour you can look out for um, and with, with the right eye and, and making sure that you're kind of uh, not jumping too quickly and making too many conclusions. Um, you, can, you can give runners of any level a lot of help. Um, so that's what we try and provide with the MOT. And to tell you the truth, it's helping quite a lot. We're getting some great feedback from runners. It, it, it really helps seeing what you're doing in slow motion on camera. And it makes it much more um, easy to appreciate why you need to be doing certain conditioning exercises, why you need to be thinking of certain running cues while you're moving, rather than just being told to do it, you know, from having lied on the couch. Because after all, 
lying someone on the couch and having lifting up their legs. There's a lot of loss in translation from that, and then trying to suggest how they should be running. You haven't even seen how they're running, so um, it's it's all come together very nicely, and, and I'm looking forward to how it pans out next year as more people come along and have it done. That's interesting. It's kind of like what uh, you know how you say uh, a picture says a thousand words. So if you see it yourself and see see what you're doing wrong, it kind of ingrains it in your mind so that you can understand it. Um, and so people in the UK that are looking for your runner's MOT, um, I will put the link to that in the show notes, which can be found at runnersconnect.net forward slash RC43. So everything we talk about in this podcast today will be on that page so you can check it out. So uh, Matt, could you explain to us about the three points of contact in Footstrike? You covered this in one of your posts recently, but just for those who may not have seen it. This is um, referring to heel strike, midfoot, yeah. forefoot. Yeah, yeah just fantastic. for runners to look out. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, this is a this is another very hot topic, um, which which we've all got such access to so much information these days, which can be great if you, for example, stumble upon Runners Connect. Fantastic, you can get some great quality info. But you go to some other websites, which you won't mention, and you're going to get confused, and also you're going to get kind of, some myths that are repeated and, and you're not going to know which way to turn. The foot strike is another great area where we can help people um, by explaining what's going on. It's another example of how man loves to categorize people and put them into little boxes. The same as we did with high arch, middle arch, low arch, you need this. It's a, I don't want to sound too cynical and say it's, it's an easier way to sell a product. It is, and a lot of people will cash in on that. If you put everybody into a category and say, you are this, you need this, what a great sales pitch. But it also just helps us understand and it makes debate easier and it makes, you know, you, but the, the fact is it's very rare that we can divide humans into such distinct categories. And the, the, the foot strike is another example of this. Um, we, evidence kind of shows, and we've got to go by the evidence, that what part of the foot you land on does not influence running-related overuse injuries. And this might come as a shock to a lot of people because... A lot of people are very passionate about what they do and what works for them. So if you, for example, have got somebody who's a four-foot striker and they've found that they're not suffering from any injuries and they're getting all their PBs, well, they're probably going to make a song and dance about it and maybe even invent their own running style based on four-foot striking. And it might be very successful, but the fact is not all people are injury-free from four-foot striking, just the same as not all people are injury-free from landing on the hill. So as I kind of mentioned before, what part of your foot touches the ground is more of a product of your own physiology um, it's the pace you're running at and there's lots of factors and it's not an indicator of, of injury as such and despite what you may read um, it reminds me there was a study last April I think um, which used as is common um, soldiers to do a lot of running in their in their training um, it was uh, US soldiers and they did a study of these soldiers over um, 12 months to look at um, how the heel strike, to look at how the non forefoot strikers bared up in terms of reporting in for injuries compared to the non heel strikers, and um, it turned out I think it was something like eighty percent of the soldiers which they looked at, male and female, were heel strikers. Um, the rest were either midfoot or forefoot, and um, there was absolutely uh, no difference in injuries reported at all. It wasn't a case the heel strikers all suffered from knee pain. Um, it was um, random enough to mean that there was no correlation at all worth mentioning statistically. And it was also interesting to point out, which is another kind of a myth buster for a lot of people, 80% of those soldiers were heel strikers. You know? um, and that bears up with research from, I often quote when people come to see me, Pete Larson, a run blogger, his um, very um, interesting study done at the 2009 Manchester City Marathon, that's your Manchester, not our beautiful Manchester in the north of England. Um, but him and his students, oh, you've been there, you know, that I was being ironic. But um, him and his students set themselves up using a high-speed camera to film runners um, of the Manchester Marathon at the 10-kilometer point and the 32k point. Um, and later on, they classified them according to their foot strike. And this is a real wake-up call for a lot of runners who come to me saying, oh, I've just bought my um, whatever flat shoes and I'm trying to be a four-foot striker because that's the way I'm going to do this marathon and and I tell them well look at this study at the marathon uh, city uh, at the Manchester City Marathon 
at 10k of this marathon, 88%, I think it was more, I think it was nearly 90% were hill striking. There was only actually 3% who were midfoot um, and even less forefoot. Okay, and when they looked at the 32k mark, um, there was 93% were hill striking. So I look at the statistics um, and, and they will say to me, oh, so I should be hill striking, but the trouble is there's so many different types of hill strike. Um, and, and again, putting people into three categories, how much pressure you put through your hill when you land, it could be what we call a proprioceptive or glancing hill strike. Especially if you're wearing a shoe with quite a drop on it and a, and a stack on the hill, you're gonna, it's going to look like you're going to have a mild point of contact with that hill pretty much however you run. But there's a big difference between somebody who just glances that hill and then comes through mainly on the midfoot as opposed to somebody who maybe is extending their leg out and landing quite solidly on the hill. Um, but the take-home message is try not to focus again on what part of the foot is, is touching the ground first. Again, focus more on what's happening high up in the chain. Um, in particular, um, how close your foot is landing to your center of mass and things like cadence and stuff like that. Um, that's how you can change your running form and, and maybe reduce injury and maybe become more, um, increase your performance, not by purposefully, purposefully trying to change what part of the foot lands first. There's no evidence to suggest that will help you. Good. That, that's, that was going to be, I was going to ask a question based on that about um, how people shouldn't, you know, hear, oh, I should land on my midfoot and spend, you know, time running, like purposely trying to change the way they're running without actually knowing what's going on behind it. Um, you know, without actually getting that expert to tell you how. I know, you know, I've been told for years that I land, I'm a heel striker. And um, when I had this gait analysis, they told me about tucking my hips under, which is which made more sense and brought, brought my foot closer to my uh, center of mass. But for years, when I people had told me to try and land on my midfoot, I could not understand what that meant. And I know a lot of runners will try and change their running form without actually understanding what's going on behind it so that just emphasizes even more to get that uh check checked out by some a professional like you um so you mentioned um about the there's so much variety in um how people run and their foot strike and all the all kinds of things but you talked about in one of your uh articles about um there's certain elements that are uh, common to all efficient running styles what elements are those? Um, do you see them a lot in elite elite runners, or what things usually are the best um, elements to have in a running style? Okay, yeah. So these are the sort of things we look out in the gait analysis, and the number one thing I say before I, before we start looking at somebody's um, foot video footage of them running is is I reiterate: there's no one perfect way of running. Otherwise, all the elites would run exactly the same way. And we know from looking at selection of elites, this isn't the case at all. Um, but not only that, your best way of running is going to be very much a case of how fast you're running, um, what your fitness levels are, your level of agility, coordination, all these other factors that make up fitness. So there's, there's a bit of a danger these days, I think, of trying to make the person training for their sub five marathon try and run like Mo Farrell or something you know it's, it's just not going to be the case you can't expect them to have the same kind of heel pick up or, or knee coming up to that height and you shouldn't expect them to have the same cadence as the elites the elites are a direction which we head in okay because we know that they do what they do very very well but it's 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 a direction and not something we need to pick up straight away you know um but so that said, there are certain traits which we can definitely work towards in terms of improving our performance. You just have to make sure it's gradual. And research shows there's some certain ways of moving and traits which which um, coincide with, with certain injuries as well, which if we see during a gait analysis and that links with their case history and symptoms they're suffering from, then we can, again, kind of try changing things and tweaking things and seeing what happens. And that's a really important thing that we also put across in gait analysis. It is looking and seeing what happens. Because there's no real guarantees. It's not an exact science all yet. All we try to do is look at the evidence and try things out and, and encourage them to listen to their body and see how things are. It might work, it might not work. And we definitely don't want to give something which is going to be dangerous. Um, but at the same time, we, we can't, we don't know yet. We can't give. It's not a, it's not a recipe of you need to do this to combat this. So, but typical things we'll look out for and um, briefly, um, we kind of over-mentioned already um, the idea of where the foot lands um, connect, um, in relation to the centre of mass. This is commonly referred to as overstriding. Working with the recreational runners in particular, 
Um, a lot of runners still believe that in order to, to make themselves go faster, they need to reach out further in front of them. And it kind of, if you're walking, if you say to somebody who's walking, I do this with the recreational runners and kind of the cast of 5K people who are just learning to run. We get them all walking. I say, right, everybody speed up. And the first thing they'll do is they'll start launching their leg out in front of them doing a fast walk, thinking I'm covering more ground quicker, my strides longer. Um, but in running, this is totally the opposite of what we need to do. Stride length comes from propelling ourselves on the ground and pushing backwards and extending the hip, not reaching forwards. So sometimes a runner's natural reaction is putting their foot too far out in front of them, the same as when you walk. And that's where the whole heel strike myth comes from, because if you do that, and you're landing on maybe an extended knee, a straight knee, chances are you are going to land on your heel. But the, the thing which research shows is, is, is a problem is the fact that your knee's locked out, not the fact you're landing on the heel. Um, and it's that what we're trying to reduce um, through playing around with things like cadence and, and, and uh, how many times your feet are touching the ground per minute. Um, not trying to say, right, put your toe down instead of your heel or try and land on your midfoot. Um, so... And we can see looking high at the elites um, and also just, um, you know, successful runners that ideally when the foot lands, it's the, the, the lower leg, the tibia is, is vertical and pointing down to the ground. That seems to be the most common trait. So we need to kind of work towards that. And we do that by playing around with um, another trait we look at called cadence um, or stride frequency. Um, which for people who, who aren't familiar with that, it's just the number of times that your feet touch the ground per minute when you're running. So you could have two people running exactly the same speed, but one of them have got their legs moving around quite slowly. Uh, one of them have got their legs moving around like kind of a hamster in a wheel, but they're still moving the same speed. And again, we know that there's, there's, a, there's a spectrum where the, the elites, there's, there was some very famous research done by Jack Daniels, which showed that um, elites, uh, I can't remember which Olympics it was, but all the distance elites were running at at least 180 a minute. In other words, in a minute, him and his students counted and their feet were touching 180 times in total, at least. Okay. Um, other research has shown that um, if you run at a slower cadence, so you're taking um, less strides and your feet are less than, I think it's 156 or 158 um, steps per minute, that has been uh, correlated with issues with the knees and patellofemoral pain and that sort of stuff. So now we've got kind of a... Uh, an area to move away from, which is lower cadence, and an area to move towards, which is high cadence. The important thing, again, is not listening to the myths. I mean, certain um, running schools will say, I've misinterpreted, unfortunately, Jack Daniels' um, uh, research, and they've showed, oh, everybody has to run at 180 SPM. Everybody needs to run at 180. Set your garments. That's what you need to run at. It just doesn't make sense, and it's kind of infuriates sometimes. Not so much me, because I'm a very mellow, placid guy, but some of my colleagues just get very angry when you're making the suggestion that even the elites, when they're jogging along and warming up, are doing 180 SPM. Mm -hmm. Because all you have to do is look at them, and a, you know, a sprinter might get up to 220 SPM of a cadence. You know, there's some. Um, um, I think I can't remember the name of the guy, but there's some iron athletes who are running at a very low cadence. So again, it's, it depends on the athlete in front of you rather than saying everybody's got to run at this speed. But yeah, so cadence is something else we have a look at. Um, another one we will look at is um, all to do with pelvic drop and things. So um, a lot of, it's, it's a bit of a weird one because there's a bit of, an, again, a myth going around that if you sit down for too long, then your hip flexors will get tight and you'll stand up and suddenly you won't be able to move. And if that was the case with the human body, it would be... It, it would be a very strange looking bunch because if we just had to stay in one position for eight hours and that twisted us, it would be very strange. But there's definitely a case of when people do run, it's almost as if the brain realises to get that leg behind you underneath, um, it has got this rather clever option of just dropping the legs down and achieving um, what we call hip extension that way. Unfortunately, although that helps get the leg behind you, it doesn't put the glutes in an anatomical position to actually get drive. So you're kind of getting the job done, but you're not actually propelling yourself back with the glutes and the hamstrings. So that's another thing we look out for runners as well, is, is whether they're compensating and achieving that kind of false hip extension. And the same thing goes with pelvic drops at the side. And there's a lot of research that shows that if your pelvis is dropping down at the side, and then you may well end up um, adducting the leg in or developing a cross gait and your feet are crossing over. And that's been linked with ITB syndrome and stuff as well like that. So that's um, kind of an example of different traits that we can look out for. 
I mean, there's plenty more as well. And again, simple cues. What you said about runners being able to change their running drills without necessarily having to concentrate on something specific. Just things like one of my favorite is running quietly. Um, it's such a common one. We get them on the treadmill and they're running away and I'm almost putting my fingers in my ears thinking, does this person not understand that they're, they're wondering why they're getting pain in their calves or in their shins and they're making so much noise I'm worried about patients in the clinic next door. And then nine times out of ten I'll say to them, do you have any chance to run with headphones or anything? And they're like, yeah, how did you know that? How the hell can you tell that? And I'm like, well, you've obviously never listened to yourself running, have you? And, and it kind of makes sense when I say to them, take the headphones out, just try and run a bit quieter. Not because you're giving me a headache, but just because if you're running quieter, then that obviously is going to, in theory, reduce the impact you're landing. And it's a very easy cue, and people don't have to think about a particular part of the body. They'll just naturally do whatever it takes to dampen the noise. And the chances are that's going to kind of help them relieve chronic problems far quicker than definitely quicker than think about what part of your foot's touching the ground or so yeah keeping it simple that's what we try and do that's interesting because um you know you talk about how uh, there's so many elements involved in uh running and a lot of people will fall into that trap of you know you hear oh you shouldn't have a cadence of over 180 and so people try and change their stride but then you may go the other direction or your hip drop like you mentioned you you know, I was told to tuck my uh, hip under like I, as if I had a, my tail between my legs. But for some people who already um, have a shortened stride, that may make it so that, you know, you're doing it too much. Um, so I think what you said about running quietly, that's something realistic that people can take and, and work with. And, uh, and obviously, the preference here is to go to uh, a professional and get your full body checked out so we do have a worldwide audience um and how would you recommend that uh people all over the world uh would what would you tell them to go look for somewhere that actually would help them rather than somewhere that just claims they help runners um is, is this a case of you get what you pay for um that's a great question i don't i don't think it, it's not a case that you know the more you pay the better it's going to be if you do um, go to an actual lab as opposed to somebody videoing on a track or outside, there's advantages and disadvantages. The, the disadvantages is going to cost a little bit more because you know the person who's got the lab has, has made a, obviously an outlay. Um, the advantage of that is they'll be able to film you from the front and the, and the back and the side at the same time as opposed to having to move around you and put footage together. It's not going to be moving up and down. Um, the quality is normally better. So you are going to pay more if you go to a lab, um, but it doesn't have to be. Like I say, you may well find, like like us, we've realised that not everyone's got the same budget, so we try and, try and tailor it so we can afford you know, an affordable package. I think the main thing to look out for, um, rather than um, how much, obviously how much it costs, but the main thing to look out for is just avoid, like the plague, any kind of form of quick fixes or magic bullets. And this is something I think that on Runners Connect we're saying time and time again, there's no, if, if, if there's a promise of a quick fix or this is a magic formula that's going to make you beat your PB and blah, 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 it's, it's very unlikely. It's running is just doesn't, doesn't happen like that. It's, I imagine you know more than anybody. Um, also, there's no one optimal way to run. If there's any kind of talk of we will teach you how best to run and they haven't even seen you yet, well, sorry, but that's impossible. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I'm trying to achieve. You don't know how my body is. You cannot tell me that you know without looking at me what my best way to run is. Okay? Um, so that's another one. Um, being careful if at the end of, of, of it there's a product they're trying to sell you. Um, it's amazingly easy to spin any form of assessment or um, gait analysis to making you therefore suddenly think, oh, you need to buy this product. You can tweak the results. Very easy to do that. So watch out if it's all directed at buying a product. And also, I think word of mouth these days, you know, it's, it's like always, don't necessarily believe the testimonials on the website. Sometimes they're great and they're real and, you know, that, that's useful. But I think the most powerful thing is getting a recommendation from people you know, people from your running community. Have a look at online blogs and things from, from real people. And just make sure that, that not only someone says, oh, yeah, they're great, they're really good, but how did they help you? What did you achieve? Get something a little bit tangible. Well, I saw this person and then within this time later, I'd achieve this or this stopped happening or... Um, so I think those traits are useful in finding not just a gait analysis, but anything for sports therapy, physiotherapy. Um, look at those kind of uh, the, yeah those areas, and you, and it will help you avoid 
kind of these charlatans who are going to take a lot of your money and, and give you very little in return. And they do exist, so watch out. It's kind of like how, um, you know, everyone's kind of trying to look for a quick fix, you know, a weight loss pill or um, this is going to make you be the best runner you could be. There's, there is no, especially in running, it takes hours and hours of um, thinking about it. And uh, as the guy at my gait analysis said, practice makes permanent. And especially if you've been doing something for a very long time, it's going to take you some, a while to get used to. So it's good to hear that you said it's, it's not so much what you need to look for but what you need to watch out for so just there's a few things there to be careful I will go over those in the notes to go with this uh, podcast so you can refer back to those um, but I think uh, Matt brought up some great points there about just be careful um, of the person that you are going to to make sure their, pri their primary goal is not just to sell you their product at the end of the day so um, speaking of you know overpaying for some uh things for your running, uh, orthotics are quite often prescribed for runners. Um, and would you say they are over-prescribed? Yeah, that's another area which is, I mean, we've just, we've, it's such a, a dark area and I think any any honest podiatrist would say that it's a very unclear science as well. I mean, we've just got a podiatrist working in our clinic and I'm over the moon because I'm just going to sit in on their patients and just try and soak it all in because it's an area which which is, like I say, the, the, the science is not very exact. Um, the, the prescribing of uh, some form of orthosis um, or kind of um, off-the-shelf kind of a shop version based on the uh, arch height, again, rather like the shoe system, is, is there's not any science really to back it. Um, the mechanism is flawed. It works for some people, maybe 50%. It doesn't work for 50%. So you know that it's case of correlation doesn't imply causation sort of thing. Um, I think this is where they are at the moment with orthoses. Traditionally, we've kind of, or science has tried to explain them by the effect they have on movement and trying to change joint alignment. Um, and they're realizing now that because of the discrepancies in research, it's probably more a case of the effect that the orthoses has on, on forces. Um, the technical term is kinetics as opposed to kinematics. So, um, and this kind of goes well with with research on injury as well, because if we regard injury as a case of certain tissues not being able to handle the force that's put through them at a certain time in your training, then if 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 the successful orthosis is based on changing the forces which go through your legs, things we can't see then if we manage to sort out anorthosis and the, and the force change, that could very much help us find a way of prescribing uh, orthotic or those, or devices accurately um, to help with um, successful treatment of injury. Um, that also explains why a lot of the time, one of the successes of using these, these flawed models is if you, if you put like a, um, one of those little, a friend of mine, Ian Griffiths, is a great podiatrist. He kind of brought to my attention the fact that you know those little kind of um, insoles you put just to make your shoes smell nicer? Yep. What they're called now. Yeah, but even if you put something like that in your shoe, it's going to change the forces. Anything you change your shoe is going to change the forces and how they affect um, you when you're running. Um, and sometimes that might be for the better. So this is how sometimes you buy a new pair of shoes who are promised they're going to help you because they're stopping you from overpenating or something. But the fact that just changing your shoe is going to change the forces and it's going to make a difference. It might not last for long. That could explain why sometimes um, inaccurate kind of prescription issues does help and why sometimes it makes it worse. My, my view on um, using um, orthoses is if you really want to get a prescribed an orthosis which is going to help you, then you need to go to a specialist. Um, it's a very, especially if we're talking about orthoses depending on, on changing forces, which we can't even see. So um, definitely um, if you're paying a lot of money, then you need to make sure it's coming from a specialist. So over here with like podiatrists, I think in the States they're called, um, what are they called? They're different names, they're not podiatrists over in the States. can't remember what they're called. But anyway, different name. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think about that. We'll have that in the notes at the end of the show. Yeah. But yeah, over here it's podiatrists. Um, but then again, I also, and we use them as well, if you experiment, if you're open to experimenting and, and the um, orthotic device doesn't cost too much, you may strike lucky. It's a little bit like flicking a coin. Um, I wouldn't base your decision only on what happens when you stand on your kind of wet foot test and your pressure plates. You know that's kind of like history now. 
But um, I do it myself. I've got, for some reason, I found um, a um, orthotic device, a little insole, which if I do start getting symptoms of um, kind of chronic heel pain or something, then I slip this into my trainers and, and it goes. I don't know how it happens, but it works. And I kind of, I found that. And so I keep them and I put them in when I need it and I take them out when I don't need it sort of thing. So you can play around on these um, cheaper versions um, of orthotic devices. And if you strike um, lucky, then great. Um, but yeah, don't pay a lot of money or don't let anybody say you need this because of this. And it's a definite because again, the science isn't there yet. Okay, yeah, that's good that to know. So, um, again, what we were talking about earlier with the shoes, orthotics, if you can find them cheaper, is kind of with your comfort level. If it's comfortable to you, then keep it. So, that's good okay. to know. So, if, um, if runners were going to cha uh, change a few things about their training in this next segment and they wanted three exercises that they could do to support their training, what three exercises would you give? I know it's difficult to pick just a few, but if you had to give three that would you know benefit the body as a whole what would you say um yeah it is tricky um because obviously it depends very much on the runner etc 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 but generalizing what i often find myself prescribing runners i mean the warm-up for example i mean a lot of runners don't warm up a lot of runners have got friends who don't warm up at all and they're never injured and so it's tempted to think well therefore i don't need to warm up but in my experience the thing is about warm-ups, and I'm, I'm kind of using warm-up as an idea of what exercise I, I would prescribe. Um, I don't look at warming up as just getting your joints lubricated and that sort of stuff, like the traditional ideas, getting your body temperature up. Warm-ups are about switching on the brain as well, and the involvement of the brain is very important these days with the runners. At the end of the day, um, the brain controls everything in your nervous system in terms of fatigue, how your body's going to move, which muscles it kind of calls on to get which job done and what order. So I very much try to encourage runners um, to use the warm-up to switch the brains on, to warm up the brains. Uh, part of that, and I'm quite famous in my neck of the woods for popularizing um, the lunge matrix, um, which uh, Jay Johnson in your neck of the woods is a big fan of. Um, it was originally devised by Gary Gray from the Gray Institute, but Jay Johnson's done his version. I'll take in Jay's and tweaks it a bit for mine. and. But um, it's basically, it's, it's based on lunges, multi-planar, so you've got a forward lunge, a forward lunge with a twist, side lunge, back diagonal lunge, and a reverse lunge. Um, and they're all based on waking up the body, waking up uh, the brain to different types of rotation, which might be called upon during the running. So this would be uh, before you go running? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, this is before. Because again, I try and get my runners to realise that a warm-up is not just to get them warm. Because if, if they think it's just to get them warm, then obviously they're just going to go for a jog. Mm -hmm. And for me, I say to them, okay, so go for a jog, your body gets warm, but are you switching your brain on? Are you kind of instigating different neural patterns and stuff? Are you improving your agility, your balance, your coordination, all these things which we take granted, which we need, especially when we're fatigued? They kind of say, well, no, I don't think I am. And I say, right, okay, let's go on to the lunge matrix and have a look at that. And the other thing I like about lunges is one, they're low impact, so you're not going to suddenly launch, even a jog, you're going to be obviously hopping from one leg to the other, so if, if you're suffering from calf problems or lower leg problems, then you're inviting that straight away with a high impact activity. So obviously lunges is, is one foot is always on the ground, but we're still practicing that balance element, which is another, to answer your questions, another exercise which I get runners to do, and runners probably don't do enough, is single leg balance work. Um, the lunge is an example, because obviously you're stepping out and balancing on one leg, but also anything involving standing on one leg, um, such as rotations, maybe holding a medicine ball or something. Um, we often give out single leg balance work for the glutes, um, particularly the glute med, the muscle on the side of the leg, um, which is, is very important with regards to uh, pelvic drops, lateral pelvic drops. Um, the glute med is traditionally thought of as a muscle which opens the legs up, which is why a lot of runners will do things like clams and lying leg abductions. Um, the glute med does do that, but its main role during running is actually stabilizing the pelvis so it doesn't drop down on the contralateral side. So um, I try and get runners to, if, they, if it looks like they do need some um, development of the glute med, which most runners and most people do, then I get them to do single leg balance work whilst rotating or twisting or lifting the hip and that sort of stuff. Um, as opposed to clams and side leg raises, which may be useful lower down in rehab and stuff, but they don't really hit the spot as much for somebody if they've already got a you know, particular level of strength. 
Um, the other exercises I like to get one is doing, particularly in the summer when it's a bit warmer, is anything that involves a theraband because again, it's a nice. Do you call them therabands? You know what therabands? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, nice kind of, the, yeah. Short, the smaller bands that you could put around your ankles or your knees. The, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think theraband is the brand. I can't remember. But um, I think there's power band here or um, power systems. Exactly, yeah. So anything that's cheap and you can put it, obviously, I'm thinking about putting it around your knees or around your ankles. And there's so many exercises you can do, like lateral band walks or forward skate walks. And all of the kind of, even if you're going down to the ground and doing some kind of um, donkey kicks or fire hydrants or all of those kind of um, exercises which you all love and adore, add a band to it and suddenly becomes more of a strength exercise. Um, they're cheap, they're easy to carry around. Um, I try and get runners, especially in summer, you know, who are, who are, my, my, my ideal and my dream is, is for there to be just as many runners kind of in the parks doing conditioning exercises as running along our seafront. You know, instead of just running forwards, they need to be doing crazy things with bands and jumping up and down off benches and stuff. Hasn't quite happened here yet. I know we're always about 10 years behind the States because I remember going to Venice Beach like about probably eight years ago and there's people doing single leg balance stuff there and, and, and jumping up to benches and over here. The British just don't do that. It just looks too absurd, you know. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's needed. You know, if you're going to get some good exercises done, you need to get rid of that kind of fear of looking a bit weird. You need to do some strange band walks. So they're the three. Dynamic warm-ups, lungs matrix, um, some single leg balance work, and, and do some stuff with bands. I think you kind of cheated a little bit there. You mentioned quite a few <laughs> exercises in there, but I'll let you get away with it. <laughs> um, so just quickly, could you describe to us, if there is such a thing, what the biomechanics of a, this sub-two-hour marathoner would be? With, do you think there is a particular, um, any elements that you would say they will definitely have? Because it's coming, but just a matter of when. <coughs> well, that's, yeah, that's a tough one. and Obviously, it's very... Um popular now with with um Kometo achieving his 2257 or whatever it was in um in berlin last year i think it's important for people to realize and i think people are that it's still tracking the kind of uh time reduction over the years since 2000 is still predicted something like unless something incredible happens it's still going to be about 15 years before it should be expected um I'm not quite sure. I know, for example, I mean, only the other day, I know it's probably, I hate to say this, but it, at the moment it's unlikely to be a British athlete. I hope it is. You never know, someone might come along. But I only say that because recently at a training conference we had for my local Brighton Marathon, again, Brighton, UK, not Boston or Michigan. I think it's a Brighton everywhere in the States, but the main yeah. Brighton in the UK. Um, we had the honour of having a presentation by a guy um, called Mike Ratton, who won the London Marathon in 1983. Um, he's got a company called 209 because that's the time he got. Um, and it's interesting because back in 83, there was, I think it was 22 UK runners who could run under 215 or 216. And Mike was surrounded and ran with people of that caliber. And, and he kind of put that down to why um, British athletes were so good at that, at that time. There's a lot of them around training together. The sad fact is today at the moment, in two, well, I think the stat is 2013. There's not one single UK runner who can run under 216. You know? And that kind of makes me think, well, is it biomechanics? All this technology and training and changing we're doing. And how come is it 20 years ago, 22 runners could run under 216. And, and today, or last year, not even one could. So it does make me think that in order to reach this two hour, it's not just the biomechanics thing. There may be factors to try and increase seconds, but there's something more important. I think when we look at the Kenyans, for example, or the Ethiopians and the East Africans, again, we, we try and look at what's different about them, what are they doing differently, and we come up with possibilities like um, they've got longer legs in relationship to the body, their calves are thinner, so in, in, in effect, this in theory uses less energy with each stride. And we look at things like VO2 max and, and low demand and stuff like that, but I think the Kenyans, for example, are a good example of they're training together. They've got to the stage where I think something like 60 of the fastest marathon runners in the world are Kenyans or something like that, and the rest are from Ethiopia or something crazy like that. So these guys are out together training together. On a daily basis, they're seeing each other achieve great things. So it makes me wonder whether it's all, I mean, it is becoming 
more important now, but it's all this sports psychology and self-belief. There's one thing you going out on the track and thinking, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and really trying to big yourself up. If you're surrounded by people who are doing it and you're training with these guys, I think that's the secret, personally, or one of the big secrets to why these uh, the East Africans are having so much success. And Mike was saying that as well. You know, these days I'm not quite sure how many British athletes are being surrounded by excellence when they're training. You know, it's just not the case. Maybe the Americans have got more. I mean, you've got Ryan Hall and and Dayton and that with their sub two fives or two sevens and stuff. At least they're training with people who are achieving these things and probably their morale is up. But when I look at the British athletes and, and starting stats like that, it really makes me think that if somebody does reach or break the two, it's going to be because they're either training with other people who do that or maybe it's because other interesting things, I think, every time there's been kind of a surge in records, it's because someone new has hit the scene some kind of superstar for whatever reason has come along and opened the doors and showed people that it can happen. Um, I think if that does happen, someone does come along with some set of, I don't know, genetics or something and achieves a lower time still, maybe the country that that individual is from will suddenly start producing incredible runners. He'll do a record or she'll do a record or whatever and then suddenly everyone else will start thinking, oh my God, he's from my country, I can do that. Kind of like the um, four-minute mile, uh, once that was exactly. broken. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I could definitely see that being the case, and that's interesting to think about, and just shows the importance of uh, running in a group. You know, ma no matter what level you're at, but running with people helps uh, push you on. So that's good to know. Um, okay, that's all my questions, but I just want to ask one more quickly from um, Stacy Thomas, which is one of our Runners Connect athletes. Um, and with, as always, if you do have a question you would like to submit for one of our future podcast podcast guests please let us know. We would love to hear from you. So you can check that out at runnersconnect.net forward slash podcast. So uh, do you think um, upper body exercises for strength endurance are important for running? Um, again, I hate to say it, but it probably depends on what your current level of upper body strength endurance is at the moment. I think you, it can easily be overdone. I think... Um, even though we talk about the need for strength and conditioning, consistency and getting those miles in is something which is very important. Um, I, I worry sometimes when I see training plans where people are doing maybe too much conditioning with boot camps and kind of that sort of stuff, maybe spending time doing upper body conditioning when they could be out there actually running. Um, so I tend to dumb down the need to, to build up the upper body. Um, and if you're going to do conditioning, then, then spend that valuable time um, on kind of hips, pelvis, that sort of area, and, and lower legs as well. Um, yeah, if you're serious about running, then yeah, I, I would say limit what you're doing to, to what is definitely going to be involved in running. The arms are simply counterbalancing the legs. There's no actual drive that comes from the arms. If, if you're struggling, you can increase that drive back with your elbows, but it's probably more of a kind of psychological help and, and, and fatigue. Ultimately, the arms are just balancing what the legs are doing so you don't fall over. Okay, so it's good to know. It's probably wiser if you are uh, short on time to put that focus into your lower leg and your hip area than uh, spending the time with your upper body. So that's all the questions we have for today. But just something I am thinking about trying for future podcasts is I'd like to give you to give me one word you would use um, to describe what you would like to achieve in 2015. One word for 2015. Um, for me personally. Yep. Um, I think, I mean, I have to admit that I am now an aging, I wouldn't even call myself an athlete anymore, but I definitely call myself aging. And working with, sort of like, I think there was a great article recently, one's connected, I can't remember who wrote it, whether it was John or, I remember, on aging athletes yeah, and how to change this. Was it John? Yeah. And, it, and it's, for me, it would probably be variety. Um, because cross-training is always important for runners. Um, but I think as you get older, um, you lose muscle mass and you lose coordination, agility and all these things. So potentially cross-training. I mean, I've, I, I work with a lot of triathletes. I'm not saying here on the record at all that I would even dream of doing a triathlete because my swimming is ridiculous. But I might try and get in the pool a little bit more and do some cycling just to cross-train and to support my running. So, yeah, more variety for That's me. That's great. That's a good word. Good, good start to the year with uh, our first guest. So um, that's all we have, uh, Matt. So I would like to thank you for coming on the show today. 
and uh, I've, I know I've learned a lot and it's been very interesting and kind of reinforced some of the things I've learned recently but I'm sure people have learned a lot so thank you very much. And that's the end of our interview with Matt Phillips. I know I learned a lot and I really found that really fascinating so I'm interested to hear what you think. You can find all the links we talked about today at runnersconnect.net forward slash rc43. If you like the podcast I would really appreciate it if you would give us a review. So that's pretty simple to do by going to runnersconnect.net forward slash review. That will take you to the page, which will make it pretty easy for you to leave us a review. So if you have a few moments, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Tune in next time.